Hello Longview Point. We finished up Ephesians last week and so it's one of my favorite times when we get to start a new book going verse by verse and understanding what God has for us through that book and uh, this time we're going to go through the book of Micah. It's an Old Testament minor prophet not because it's minor in its significance but just small in size but there's so much good stuff in the book of Micah that really impacts our life. Like there's this imagery that comes forward that is really intimidating in a lot of places, but it is always wrapped up with hope and with assurance and what God has for us. So I've entitled the series, The King is Coming, because that's where the hope is coming in, that there is a king who is coming to reign supreme, and, and he's issuing in peace and justice and holiness to, to our lives there. And my prayer is that this time is going to give us a greater understanding of who that king is, who God is, and also that we will understand what his purpose is for our life, what he's called us to, and what he intends for us to be living out. Just to lay the context, we'll read the first verse, and then we'll actually go through the first two chapters today uh, in the book of Micah. The first verse is this, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moriseth, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. We want to lay context. We want to understand exactly where it is that we are talking about. What is Micah, what is the audience he's talking to? He's talking to the two kingdoms here around 700 BC. He's talking about the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and he's going to be issuing a judgment on these kingdoms. They are at the, this time of great prosperity. The, the rich are very rich right now, and their kingdoms are actually farther along, they're, they're more expansive than they had been since Solomon's reign. They have been growing and, and were excited about the things going on around them. But there were issues that were going on within these kingdoms. They were worshiping the idols and the, the religions of the nations around them. In fact, you know, we'll talk about this some today, but the, these kingdoms were supposed to be different than their nations around them. They were supposed to be set apart and, and being a light into the darkness to, that shows who God is. But instead, they really looked a lot like the world around them. They were worshiping false gods. They were uh, just doing the, the, the things that were sinful that the other nations were doing. And Assyria, the notorious empire, was at the doorstep. And that is the judgment, that's part of the judgment that Micah is getting into here. So as you look at this verse, Micah of Moriseth, the first thing I want you to notice is that God uses people from all different places and all different backgrounds. You know, we really don't know a lot about Micah. If, if he was really uh, prosperous during that time, it, it probably would have listed his lineage. It would have told about who he came from. But all we get is that he comes from the town of Moriseth. Now, let me ask you a question. If I was to ask you to list famous biblical places, how long is it going to take before you get to Moriseth? You're going to be listing places like Jerusalem. You're going to be listing places like Bethlehem and Nazareth and Galilee. And you may go with Jericho or Ai. Or there may be all these places that you want to list. But when do you get to Moriseth? 
The truth is most of us don't know much about Morseth at all. We've never really studied it. We don't know about it. It's a small, small village, 22 miles southwest of Jerusalem, that really there's nothing of significance there other than the fact that Micah is from there. Micah's, there's 14 Micahs mentioned in the Bible, but this is one of them. And like I said, we don't even know his lineage. He's not even the most influential prophet of his time. During the same time period, Isaiah is speaking to the royal court. Isaiah, whose book is much, much bigger than Micah's, he's given out the, the full extensive speeches to, to these royal family. He's part of that royal family. And yet Micah is just a good old country boy from Moraseth speaking God's word to his people. You know, his message would not have been popular either. I've told you already, it's a time of judgment that he is saying is coming for the people. That is not a message that the people wanted to hear. But there is one good thing. Micah's message bore fruit. We actually get to see fruit from Micah's message. About a hundred years later, in the book of Jeremiah, it comes before Micah because it's a larger book but yet it comes after it in chronology. And so we see that he had fruit in his ministry. Jeremiah chapter 26, verses 16 through 19. The, the people there are wanting to kill Jeremiah, but this is what they decide. It says, Then the officials and all the people said to the priest and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land rose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Moraseth prophesied in the day of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house of a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. You see, as you look at that passage of scripture, he's telling us that King Hezekiah heard the messages of Micah and responded to it. And the Lord relented from the judgment that was supposed to come for just a, a, a while because of Hezekiah's repentance. You see, Micah saw fruit in his ministry. It didn't matter that he was from this small town of Morseth that nobody had heard of, just like it doesn't matter where you're from. God wants to use you for his kingdom. He wants to, to take you and use the experiences that you have, use the, the, the past that he's built within you, the, the context that you're from, and he wants to use you to further his kingdom. Whether you're from some town that nobody's ever heard of or the, the backwoods of the county or whatever it is, God wants to use you for his kingdom. See, there's great encouragement as we start Micah that he was a man from a small town that God used to expand his kingdom, to, to get his message out to the people and God used him tremendously. So we see that. But then he goes into the character of God. He goes into explaining who God is. And, and he, for being a, a small country boy, 
Like he has got a way of words, way with words, 100%. Listen to what he says. This is the way he starts his prophecies to the people. He says, hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire. The waters poured down a steep place. And this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. You see, there's two things that we notice about the character of God here. The first thing is his majesty. The imagery that Micah uses in those first three verses of two, three, and four, he's talking about how the mountains will melt under God. God is coming and there's this majesty that surrounds him that the earth cannot even grasp it. The mouth, the mountains are bowing down. The high places are, are being tread upon. The valleys are splitting open like wax before a fire. How many times do we come before God and we come in such a half-hearted way? Like we come before God and we don't necessarily realize that we are coming before this majestic king, our creator, our sustainer, the one who holds all the earth together with his words. And we come and, and we take it so lightly. We take it as, as it's just an everyday occurrence. But yet as he's coming down and he's coming down in judgment here, but the earth is just paving the way for him like a red carpet. Like it is flattening itself. It is melting like wax because it is amazed by the majesty of who God is. But as he continues on, it also tells us about his holiness, that he is a holy God and he wants holiness from his people as well. You look and he's calling out the transgressions of Jacob. He's calling out the sins of Israel. He's calling out the, the worship in the high places. He goes on to list these sins later. We'll talk about them. But he is a holy and perfect God who is interceding in the works of man. He is holy and perfect. Lately, I've been asked a couple of times about the wrath of God. How do we understand the wrath of God uh, with the love of God? And, and it's this complicated question. And honestly, I think people are getting it as they're witnessing to people, as they're sharing the good news of the gospel with people. The people are asking about how God can be a God of wrath. But part of his holiness is his hatred of evil. I think that's important for us to, to realize. His holiness is a hatred of evil as well. What do I mean by that? And I think we understand it in a small sense. You know, if we truly love people, if we care for their well-being, when we see them making decisions that are destructive for their life, we get angry about the decisions that they're making, don't we? Or if we read about these things in the, in the news, then, then we get angry about the evil that is taking place in the world around us. A couple of examples, I think about if you, you hear stories of human trafficking. 
there's anger at the evil of that situation or child soldiers who are going off to, to war and ambushing things and people. Like we get angry at the evil that is taking place there or there's other moral evils like rape or murder or any of those things that when we hear it, when we see it, there is an anger that, that boils up inside us because we love people and we hate to see the evil that is taking place. Y'all, God's love is perfect. God's love for what he created is incredible. So much more than the way that we can even love people. And so he gets angry. There is a wrath that comes for anything that is trying to destroy the people and the world that he's created. There is a, a righteous wrath that comes from it. He wants what's best for all of us. And he hates the rebellion and the evil that's come into the world because of our sin. Tim Keller, in a quote, uh, really kind of defined it perfectly as we're trying to set this aside as God's wrath and understanding of his love as well. He says, if you don't believe in a God of wrath, you have no idea of your value. Here's what I mean. A God without wrath has no need to go to the cross and suffer incredible agony and die in order to save you. Picture on the left, a God who pays nothing in order to love you. And picture on the right, the God of the Bible, who, because he's angry at evil, must go to the cross, absorb the debt, pay the ransom, and suffer immense torment. How do you know how much the free love God loves you or how valuable you are to him? Well, his love is just a concept you don't know at all. This God pays no price in order to love you. How valuable are you to the God of the Bible? Valuable enough that he would go to these depths for you. You see, when we understand God's wrath, we actually understand God's love because we understand the love that he uh, showed us on the cross by taking on the wrath for our sin. You see, he is coming in judgment. He knows that there is evil in the world, that there is rebellion against him, and he doesn't want it to be that way. Instead, he wants us to be walking in fellowship with him. And so we need to take seriously the sins in our life. You see, that's where Micah goes next. We've, we've talked about how God used him. We talked about the character of God. But Micah then takes it and he addresses the sins of the people. He doesn't just talk about the judgment that God's coming. He starts bearing out specific sins that have come up in their lives. You look at verse 7 in chapter 1. And her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. There are sins that are taking place. There are sins of idolatry. Are there idols in our lives? Things that we're not talking about golden images here, but things that we're putting on the throne ahead of God. Things that we're putting more value into rather than our heavenly king. But then he goes on and there's more as you look uh, in chapter 2, we see, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I'm devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. You see, 
They had rich people taking advantage of the poor. You see greed there and abuse of others. And then as you continue on, you also see false teachings here too. Verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2 say this. I'll start in verse 6. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen as up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. You see in that, he's dealing with the false teachings where people are taking parts of Scripture, the promises of Scripture, but not the warnings of Scripture. You can look at Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where they would take the first half of those verses where God's promising blessings on the people. But when he starts warning them of, look, if you rebel, if you break my covenant, then there will be consequences. And they, they don't want to talk about that. So much of our, of our time in, in Bible study, we like to focus on the good that God has promised. But we need to see the warnings against sin, too. So many teachers want to tell us what we want to hear, but here Micah is speaking this unpopular message of, of sin and consequences and judgment and wrath that are coming because he wants us to turn from our sins and to seek after holiness with all of our heart, to know that God has something greater for us. But as we call people to repentance, as we think about the sin in our life and, and being laid bare of what that looks like, we have to realize that Micah is not rejoicing over the judgment at all, but he is mourning over it. As you go back, we kind of jumped ahead, but look at verse 8 of chapter 1. He says this, For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. He goes on, Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Beth Lafra. Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir. In nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentation of Bethazel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Moroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lakesh. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morsheth Gath. The houses of Akzeb shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Moresha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. But as you read this, especially those first couple of verses we read about lamenting and wailing and mourning, and then the last ones where he's showing the signs of those things with going bald and making yourself, cutting off your hair. There is a call to mourn the sin in our communities, a call to lament the sin in our own lives as well. Not settling, not, not, not thinking that there are sins that are okay, but rejecting every sin 
and churning to God. I think that there are sins that, that we try to justify in our lives. We try to think that we are okay doing them. Everyone else is doing them, so we're okay. It's just a, a thing. Or, or I've heard people say, oh, that's just a phase that they're going through. But sin is not a phase. Sin is setting up habits of constant rebellion against God. And so we have to reject even the smallest of sins. We have to churn from it, repent from it. We don't need a cruise control holiness in our lives where we think that just because we are doing just as well as somebody else, we can just kind of coast right there. We can set the button and, and we're good. But instead, we want to accelerate in our holiness. We want to constantly be going full speed in pursuit of God and his holiness of knowing who he is and having his perfection in our lives. And so we want to make sure that we reject sin, that we read scripture and let it conform us into his image. But I want to conclude with this. Because every time as Micah gives these, these sermons, these oracles, these, these speeches to the people, he always wraps it up with this. And this is why I call it the king is coming. Because as you look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2, it's so encouraging. It says this, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnants of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. A noisy multitude of men, he who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate. Going out by it, the king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. You see, in our sin, God has come and made away. He has brought us a promise of hope and salvation that we can get out of the chains of sin and be called the children of God. He is gathering us and it always has a remnant and he calls us his sheep because he is protecting us. He is calling us to himself. He's gathered us together and he's done it by taking the wrath that we deserve on himself in Christ so that we can have a relationship with him, that he can be our shepherd king, gathering us together and reigning supreme, that he is the one who is leading us through the gate into his city. And we'll talk about what that new Jerusalem looks like over the next coming weeks as well, but it is a city where he is ruling and reigning and it is pure and holy and good and he wants us to be a part of that with him. But to do that, we have to receive a pardon for our sins. We have to actually accept the sacrifice that he's paid, that he has done, that he has taken on the wrath for himself. There was a story I read a while back about a certain criminal, a guy named George Wilson. This is back in 1833. Uh, Wilson had been arrested for robbery and endangering a mail carrier. And his punishment that he uh, was due because he pled guilty for it was actually a punishment of death. But the president, Andrew Jackson at the time, actually issued a pardon on behalf of George Wilson. He, he wanted to pardon him from those sins, from that, what he had been guilty of. But Wilson refused to take the pardon. Instead of receiving the pardon that Jackson uh, was giving him, he actually took this case all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court 
basically said, look, in order for the pardon to be effective, Wilson has to receive it. Well, God has made a way to pardon you from your sin. But you have to receive that gift of a pardon as well. He has taken the payment that we deserve and he's taken it on himself so that we can have that relationship with him. So my challenge for you tonight is that if you have not taken that pardon, that you will receive it today. That you will ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior and ask him to be the one that delivers you from sin, from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. And have that joyful relationship with your heavenly king. So here's my point for today. Do not take sin in our life lightly, but look to the king for your salvation. Y'all know I love to, to wrap up with a few questions and some ways for you to kind of think through this a little bit more. So let me ask these questions for you today. One, how does God want to use you to further his kingdom? Like I said, it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter if you're from the backwoods of Tate County or DeSoto County or Marshall County or wherever it may be. God wants to use you and your family for his kingdom. We know people from this area who are all over the world proclaiming God's truth in lost places. What does God want to do with you? Number two, what does the majesty of God mean to you? We talked about how the earth you know, bow down before him. What does that mean for you? How does that look in your life now? Number three, is there a sin that you are viewing as an acceptable sin instead of viewing it as rebellion against God? These common sins that we just take for granted that they're not a big deal, but God calls us to holiness. Number four, have you ever asked Jesus to save you from your sins? Has there been a time where, where he has transformed your life and you've left that sin behind and you've submitted yourself to him as your Lord and Savior? And number five, is there someone in your life that needs to hear about the salvation that God is offering them? Has he laid someone on your heart that you need to go share the good news that they have a way out from under his wrath and into his love and into his life or into a relationship with him. So that's my questions. I hope that they are some great discussions for you and your families. If you're an individual, just think through those, maybe write those answers out. But realize that as we study Micah, he is a holy God, he's a just God, and he's a loving God who even as the judgment goes on, he's still making a way for hope in a future. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is true. Uh, Lord, we know that as the prophets spoke, so many things happened that, that fulfilled what they had to say. And Lord, we thank you so much for the cross. We thank you that you took on the wrath that we deserved so that we can have that relationship with you. So Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here uh, that is watching this, listening to this, that does not know you, Lord, that they will turn from their sin, realize their need for you as their Savior. But Father, help those of us who know you never take that for granted 
And instead, Lord, to rejoice always that you are our shepherd king, the one who protects us, the one who called us out, the one who calls us to himself. And so thank you for the hope that we have in you. Lord, you are an amazing God. Give us an urgency to share your gospel, your good news with all that we come in contact with. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.